I V M. What is the United Nations? Is it really a global government? Ameya Nayak returns to the Pragati podcast to tell us about the UN and how it has shaped the last seventy-five years of the world. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath. Ameya is a non-resident associate fellow for geostrategy at the Takshashila Institution, and he's been on the show in the past to talk about everything from sovereignty to the Syrian refugee crisis to nukes in Iran and North Korea. We'll start our conversation with Ameya after this short break. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. One more reminder: we are still hiring. We're looking for producers, content creators, audio engineers, developers, and basically all kinds of people. Go onto our careers page, ivmpodcast.com/careers, and apply. Please send us your resume, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Also, wanted to make a note to you all that hey, if you are listening to us and you hear something you like, take a screenshot of what you're doing, send it to us. On social media, tag us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever, and we'll repost you on our own page. This week, your favorite fitness podcaster Urmi Kothari is back with season two of the Kinetic Living podcast. Urmi is doing two bite-sized episodes every week: the Bata Tuesdays, which will be a four-minute workout, and a second called Thriving Thursdays, where Urmi will share motivating personal experiences of challenges she's faced. On the scene and the unseen, Amit Parma's guest is Chinmay Tumbe, who talks about his book India Moving and the history, specifics, and fascinating stories of migrating populations across the length and breadth of India. On the Rani Screwala podcast, Rani talks to me about how working hard also implies working smart. And has to do with seizing, seeking, and creating opportunities. We also talk about why the success of Hangama TV and Rangde Basanti wasn't a fluke. On the empowering series, Zarina is joined by Aidan D'Souza, marketing director at Power Talk UK Limited. They talk about investment and savings and give you tips on the right way to spend and invest with less money. On paperback, our producer and stand-up comedian Abbas Mobin joins Racheta and Satyajit to discuss the political books that give perspectives to otherwise flat narratives. On Equity Sahiya, Shreya Lunkar, Senior Vice President at Motilal Oswal Asset Management Company, talks to Anupam about the FMCG sector in India. On Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, Janice and Anirudh talk about their love for true crime documentaries. They discuss the two best shows belonging to the genre, Making a Murderer and The Jinx. On the origin of things, Chuck narrates a story of a Scotsman from the hills, college memories, and a deadly encounter. On Golgappa, Tripti is joined by music composer duo Rohan Pradhan and Rohan Gokhale to talk about their musical journey, their upcoming movie Smile Please, and more. On our Kannada podcast, Thale Harate, Pawan, and Ganesh are joined by Ashwin Mahesh, a climate scientist and city change maker, to discuss how citizens can engage with public policy. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Hi, Maya. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. It's As always, a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Pawan. Thanks again. Amaya, today we want to talk about uh, United Nations. So it's something that you've thought about a lot. International law are things that you're uh, quite passionate about, and we had sort of dived into subsections of it in past discussions, right? right. From uh, nuclear liability to uh, refugee crisis and a whole lot of things. But today, what I really want to talk about is. how should we understand this beast called the united nations and how uh, relevant and important it is to the world uh, we see around us right and um, my first question is you know when we read up on government in civics textbooks we start from okay you know government is executive legislature judiciary three arms right. and they do a bunch of things and there's checks and balances all of that is the un Can we think of the United Nations as global government? And if so, how do we really unpack this beast? 
so on a surface level, yeah, you could make that parallel, right? You could say that there, yes, there's a legislature, there's an executive, there's a judiciary. But the relationship between those bodies would not track what we're familiar with as the relationship between them at a national government level. So in that parallel, the General Assembly and the Economic and Social Committee, the GA and ECOSOC, would be sort of your broad legislature. Okay. The Secretariat and the Security Council would be your executive. So the Security Council would be the executive proper. The Secretariat would be the underpinning bureaucracy and administration that responds to the executive. Right. And the International Court of Justice, as well as various other judicial, quasi-judicial bodies that have been set up over the years, would be the judiciary. They don't have equal powers. They're not constructed in a way that they are meant to serve as checks and balances for each other, right? That's not the goal with which they were ever set up. So is it then correct to even think of the UN as a global global government? There's Uh, global governance, and I get that, right? right. There are lots of things... Uh, where you need rules, laws, norms, practices that need to be shared internationally. Right. But uh, would it constitute a government though? I don't think so. I think the most optimistic answer is that it is the mechanism through which a global government may be devised. Okay. Uh, But we're not there yet. And who knows if we ever will be. And I don't know if people who are participating in the UN want there to be one, right? Almost certainly they don't. At least if you're talking about the states. Right, because uh, the rallying cry against any growth in influence, let alone literal power of the UN, is that it is depriving countries of control over something that they previously had control over. Right? Uh, there's a word I'm not saying, and you know what it is, but I'm, I'm saving it for later in the podcast. So uh, I think a useful way to think about this is is from I believe uh, Tom Frank's classic textbook on the UN. It's called Law and Practice of the UN. Uh, not a reading recommendation because it's a textbook and okay. it's dense. But he, he basically says that you can think of the UN as three entities or three aspects of its nature at the same time. One is that it's a forum. Okay. Right. So it's a place where states and other actors can come together and talk. Right. What is the function you're convening? Right. Right. Getting everybody on a stage together, letting them talk to or at or past each other, whatever it may be. But they're all in the same room and they're talking. Right. Right. Uh, The other is that it's an instrument. Right. And this is where it starts getting different from government at the the national level, as you know it. The apparatus of the state is an instrument that is used by the government of the day to enact its will. Right. The UN is an instrument that is used by the governments of the world to at least attempt to enact their will to varying degrees of success. So it, it is a way for states to the forum function is a way for them to negotiate assuming that the negotiation had some kind of outcome the instrument function is a way for them to actually enact and enforce it right but the the third element which is what makes the un increasingly unique in this case is that it's an actor in its own right okay right so it has it has its own budget it has its own staff it has its own bodies that go out and do things None of these can be disconnected entirely from the will of the states because ultimately the states are the entities that make up the UN. But that connection can start to get pretty stretched and pretty tenuous as you go along. And right? and it's sort of bi-directional, right? It's not just sort of states influencing 
or just powerful states influencing the UN, but the UN also in influencing the states. Even that, absolutely. So, on one end of the spectrum, you have sort of like the the small, relatively recently formed, uh, in pretty bad financial shape sort of state, right? Where international organizations, including the UN, have been criticized for being sort of quasi-government in their own right, of sort of dictating the things that the government of that state can and can't do, right? But at the same time, also rebuilding governments. I mean, when Kosovo was bombed out, I mean, somebody had to go in and rebuild government from scratch. Yeah, so the, the, the stated purpose of international organizations in doing those things is indeed to sort of bolster the capacity of the people of that country to have a separate functioning government of their own that can stand with lesser right. and lesser degrees of assistance, right? Yeah, that's the trajectory it's supposed to go along. Mm. Um, and so I, I just told you one extreme end of the spectrum, right? right? Uh, at the other extreme end of the spectrum, you have, I guess, the five veto powers on the Security Council uh, who potentially have the power to turn around and tell the UN Nah, we're not going to do what anybody else, including most of the countries here, want us to do. But even they are increasingly constrained by uh, the various developments in the UN, right? So you can look at one flashpoint and be like, no, they did whatever they wanted. But you can look at the trend over the past, what is it now, 75 years. Right. Uh, and you will see that sort of the the band into which their actions fit tends to become narrower and more homogenous. Okay. And when they step outside that band, the repercussions, at least at the level of people saying, hey, no, hang on, you're doing something wrong and there's a problem and this should not be allowed and you should not get away with this increase. Right? So it's a, it's a constraining effect. It's not direct. Right. But it's sort of like shrinking the range of options that are considered appropriate. Okay. So... A forum, a uh, an instrument, and layer by itself. Right. Uh, and what's how do I go from there to looking at? You know, there's a United Nations Development Organization. There's a university somewhere. There's the UNICEF. There's the Security Council. The General Assembly. Uh, a whole host of organizations that work across the world. Right. So how do I? start bucketing all of them or do some of those organizations span these multiple functions as well? Uh, no, for the most part, you can you can categorize them fairly cleanly. Uh, as I said, forum is basically General Assembly plus uh, Economic and Social Commission. Okay. Right? I'm I'm abstracting at highest level. So there's, there's sure. definitely sort of like moderate to minor details that, that will blur this. Right. But and, and just for clarity, in parallel to this, you have the IMF, the World Bank, and also now the World Trade Organization. So I'll get to those as well. Yeah. Okay. So core UN, quote unquote legislature, GA ECOSOC. All right. Right. Fora, countries come together, talk, vote, adopt declarations, resolutions, whatever. Those things go out in the world. Uh, under the terms of the UN Charter, they have some power. Because generally speaking, member states are supposed to do what the UN says they should do. That's what they signed up to when they signed the charter. Uh, but no real enforcement authority. Okay. Right? Secretariat itself contains various departments. It also contains a number of regional commissions. Okay. 
right? So they now have sort of mini headquarters in five or six or seven places around. So New York and Geneva are sort of like the two traditional seats. Right. But in addition, there is Nairobi, there is Bangkok, there is, uh, I'm blanking on where it is in Latin America and the Caribbean, but there's a, there's a UN commission for Latin America and the Caribbean. So there is regional offices okay. uh, under which there might even be country offices. Uh, there are missions. Okay. Peacekeeping and political missions, right? Which are sort of self-contained bodies that are operating in specific states with specific mandates. Uh, then there are special advisors, representatives and envoys, right? So you might have read some news recently about like the UN uh, Special Rapporteur on Poverty and Development publishing a report about the US. Right. Uh, sometime back there was... Uh, at least in the circles I move in, there was a report by a special envoy on extrajudicial killing uh, that looked at whether drone strikes against suspected terrorists were considered extrajudicial execution. So these are people that the Secretary General has said, listen, here's a, here's a sort of tough global problem, human rights issue, you go deal with it. Okay. Uh, so the various bodies that you might have heard of, say the High Commissioner on Human Rights, the bodies that handle refugee affairs, the UN Development Fund, uh, UNFPA, which today is called the Population Fund, but the old acronym was Family Planning Alliance. Okay. Uh, all of these fall into another bucket, which is the funds and agencies. Okay. Right? So, loosely speaking, Secretariat does most of the bureaucratic stuff plus a fair amount of the peace and security stuff. Okay. Funds and agencies do most of the development stuff. Okay. UNDP, UNICEF, UNESCO, etc., 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 and then you have the International Court of Justice. Okay. Which is a body off on its own. This is your core UN, right? These five bodies: mm. GA, ECOSOC, Secretariat, Funds and Agencies, ICJ. Okay. Outside of this, you have the Bretton Woods institutions, which is the ones you asked about. Okay. Right, because they were not established under the UN Charter; they sort of are a legal entity of their own. Right. World Bank, IMF, ICSID, etc. Uh, separate from that, now you have the WTO as well. Right. Right. Because the UN is sort of the seat of global coordination and bureaucracy, WTO works pretty closely with the UN as well. Right. World Bank, IMF still have separate institutional existences of their own. Right. Okay. So you can have a World Bank head of country and a UN resident commissioner in the same country. You typically would not find country heads from the WTO. Okay. So basically, this is the core, everything else that we see from the UNFCC, the climate change framework to all other four are sort of secondary um, things that have been established. So like you spoke about the General Assembly and ECOSOC as forums for discussion and negotiation. Mm -hmm. These have been sort of specialized forums that have been set up for other work, right? Correct. Correct. So the General Assembly and or Security Council and or a grouping of states within the General Assembly right. got together and said, uh, yeah, we're going to look into this topic specifically. And then sometimes they set up like a separate body to look into it, uh, which might have also grown its own sort of secretariat corresponding support structure and bureaucracy. So so if this is the case, then, um, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of activity. I mean, the UN's mandate and ambition seem to be gigantic in proportions. I mean, like the, we, you, basically you, everything. Yeah, I mean, and they have sort of a position paper or something about 
pretty much any topic that you can think of right but how far is that relevant how far is that um, influencing what's happening in the world so if if today the un were to for some reason suddenly stop existing then major countries pull out the forum becomes defunct will the world change significantly or is it a bad question to ask no it's a, it's a good question but i have like three answers okay it's that good a question <laughs> um first order short answer is no the world wouldn't change all that much okay uh, but there's a there's a very very important caveat on that the caveat is that the un charter is today the primary body of law uh, that recognizes states as sovereign equals that says that they have a right to sovereignty over their own territory and therefore that one state shall not use force against the territory of another state right so it's it's the primary body of law that makes wars of aggression or the conquest of territory illegal so it's sort of the 21st century treaty of westphalia it's yeah, sort of literally i mean it is it is yeah, the modern evolution successor global development of the treaty of westphalia yes and um, and coming bang on after the second world war for pretty much the reason that you they didn't want a third world war yeah 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 the famous quote of course is that the the un was not created to lead the world to heaven but to prevent it from descending into hell right uh-huh. is, i mean bit too poetic for my taste but yeah the point is that it was primarily created to prevent global warfare from breaking out again and so of course it embodied this principle that attacking the territory of another country is illegal right So if you are 10 hypothetical countries that pulled out and like dissolved the organization did not do so with like the goal or the intent of attacking other countries maybe not much would change right but what's interesting about this is to consider why not much would change and i believe that the reason not much would change is because a lot of the laws and principles and norms that the un has established are roughly as powerful without the un itself as they are if the un was present right okay like whatever power is vested in them comes because states are willing to abide by them the un is just the coordinating layer on top of that where like everyone expresses their agreement to it uh, or their condemnation of people who don't abide by it right right so uh, maybe if the un vanished it would force a number of countries to actually codify these obligations to each other either into some sort of multilateral treaty or into bilateral agreements with each other right. right but we've got it used to big picture the rules of the game right don't attack other countries there are notable exceptions <laughs> russia's invasion of crimea is obviously the most sort of prominent one nobody not even the russians say no but it was right and proper for us to invade because we can conquer territory right right even russia comes up with this elaborate justification right right so as long as no country went to saying actually it's fine for us to conquer territory you'd sort of see an alternate form of bureaucracy emerge around it there's a there's a classic 1992 article uh by a guy called christopher went so the surname is w e n d t went don't quote me on the first name which lays out the the sort of the social constructivist view of the international order okay essentially dealing with this same question of look we have the un but if there wasn't the un what would there be and like the title of the article actually is a fantastic summary 
Okay. It's called anarchy is what states make of it. <laughs> right? States would tend to make a reasonably stable order out of an anarchic one because that's what most in their interest. Maybe it wouldn't be called the UN. Right. Maybe it wouldn't have quite as many funds and agencies and functions because the longer a body like this exists, the more it tends to sort of uh, spread grow, out and like I mean, self-interest you know, sort of scope increases. creep and like budget creep and everything else happens. Right. Don't let my friends who work in some of the more recently established agencies hear me describing them as scope creep. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think in as much as the UN has been able to establish certain principles as the rules of the road, the absence of the UN would no longer affect them too much because it didn't have that much enforcing ability in the first place. So if I change that question to what would have happened if the UN had, you know, dissolved within the first 10 years of existence, right? While other things sort of roughly being the same. So what did sort of, how did UN uh, influence global history since the world wars? I so mean, that's, that's a, a very that's big That's a giant question. counterfactual, right? Uh, uh, no, not right. even a counterfactual, but like a big question on, you know, what uh, they did. But uh, what do you think with certain key global rules, principles, norms, institutions that uh, the UN built over the last 75 years? Yeah, so worst case scenario, obviously, is nuclear war. Okay. Right? Like, sure. So, but but one has to hope that like the logic of deterrence was strong enough in itself without specifically needing this this coordinating layer of the UN in between. Right. Uh, although there is no doubt that the establishment of a security council with veto powers helped stabilize how nuclear armed powers then chose to exercise that power or influence. Right. right? It, it basically gave them an alternate dimension in which to contend with each other other than literally, I have more nuclear weapons. Right. Didn't stop them from contending on the I have more nuclear weapons. But anyway, we've dealt with that in a previous episode as well. So right. like, I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over now. So, Amir, do you think the UN sort of ended up institutionalizing inequality worldwide in a certain sense? You know, you have states which are more powerful. You have the US and sort of other powers on top. You have small countries of various size. And while they might have some nominal sort of rights as a member of the United Nations, you know, you have permanent members on the Security Council with special powers, you might have other powers that are differentiated, right? So did it sort of build that into the DNA of the UN? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yes, uh, not just through the Security Council, but also because there are uh, informal arrangements about senior positions in secretariat being reserved for people of specific nationalities. So it's a way that uh, influence over even the bureaucracy and the secretariat is maintained by that set of powerful countries. Um, what you have to keep in mind, though, is that this was 1945. Right. Right. And like the world of 1945 did not look the same as. Uh, there was no principle that countries are equal. Hmm. So Ironically, it, it was written into the UN Charter. Okay. So, uh, sort of at the foundation, there is this contradiction. No, but it's sort of, I mean, it is the law of the jungle uh, to various respects uh, when it comes to the world. Uh, so, so you do have sort of Matsya Nyaya at that level too, right? And the UN might be an attempt at maybe 
changing that to a certain extent, but sort of fundamentally recognizes that states have different amounts of power. Yeah. So, I mean, I, again, I, I don't think we have to go as far as sort of the, it was an anarchic big fish eat small fish world, right? Again, it was right after World War II, right? There was a recognition that just imposing harsh conditions on countries that lose wars is not enough to set you up for sort of enduring peace and harmony, right? Uh, there were a large number of colonies, including India at that time, right? This is still 1945. Right. Uh, we signed both the 1942 Declaration of the United Nations which was basically a declaration that said we will fight the Axis powers. had okay. nothing to do with <laughs> the United Nations as it exists today. Right. But the term stuck. We signed the San Francisco Declaration of the United Nations, which is the Charter of the United Nations. But we did that as a colony. Right. I mean, we did that as a colony that was pretty clearly going to become independent in the very near future. Hmm. Because 1942 to 1945 is, I mean, we know what the history of India in that time is. Right. But there were a number of other colonies that did not have any clear trajectory to independence in front of them. Hmm. So if you're going to talk about like inequality between countries, there was a far more institutionalized form of inequality already in practice at that time. and the UN did perceive of the, the large military powers, the veto powers, as sort of the policemen of their regions of the world. Right? That, that definitely was the intention. Since then, of course, in part because of its success in institutionalizing the principle of equality of states, the nature of the world has changed a lot. And the nature of those changes is such that you know, the, the thing that survives, which is primarily the Security Council and the veto power, looks increasingly archaic or sort of out of place relative to. But just to give you one example, right? and this is also to your question of like big things that the UN did. You've probably read about how Churchill on down, the British argued that India was not ready for independence. Right. Right. They said doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the leaders, doesn't have the intelligence, doesn't have the... I mean, many of these things were also couched in far more racist language of that time, right? Of sort of like the natural capacity or the tendency towards barbarism or whatever, like the right. gifts of civilization have not yet been spread, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But the gist of the argument was, listen, we need to keep control of them for a little longer. For their own good. Because they don't have the ability, even if we gave them independence tomorrow, they would squander it. Right. Right. And Gandhi's answer famously was... Leave India to God. If that is too much, leave India to anarchy, but leave. <laughs> right? Enough. Right. But that wasn't a particularly like, it wasn't something that was happening uniquely in the context of the British Empire in India or the British Empire in modern day, right. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. Right? Mm. It was the common reframe of colonial powers across the world. Right? It's what the Belgians said. It's what the Danes said. It's what the French said. By 1960, the General Assembly, which of course was smaller in membership than it is now, but had, I'm guessing, about 70-odd members at that point of time, okay. uh, said, enough, right? Like, you've had the better part of 15 years since we signed this thing that said all nations are sovereign equals. You've had that time to operate through the General Assembly, a set of arrangements 
this entire other thing called the trusteeship council which is now defunct uh and y'all are just making the same excuses so december 1960 the general assembly adopts something uh called i mean what's today just called the decolonization resolution i think the formal name is sort of a uh, declaration on the granting of rights to colonized peoples okay. or colonized countries it's interesting that it's still colonized peoples or colonized countries it's still not quite sort of at the level of political entity so much as it is sort of like a, a ethno nation state concept right but the gist of that declaration was you can no longer use existing capacity as an excuse to refuse to decolonize after the immediate post world war 2 wave of decolonization the next great wave of decolonization is sort of 1960 to 1965 right right that's when a number of modern african countries come into being as independent entities mm-hmm. uh, so pretty large impact right we went from having like less than 100 countries in the world to 140 or 150 in the span of 20 20 30 years right right essentially because the set of things that colonial powers were using to walk slow on this were deemed unacceptable by the general assembly anymore could the general assembly enforce this not really but once the general assembly had said this could those same talking points be used the next time the question came up not in any way that was credible right right so decolonization is one big one the other so uh, so in that sense it's almost if we see 1945 as um you know the world wars exhausting the existing empires of the day uh, it takes that extra 15 years for empires to no longer be the norm right so now correct so now it's sort of no longer the norm that uh, your empire has a reason to exist you should be some form of a nation state and you should be governing yourself right so it was sort of the un in 1960 where the norm that empires are are a valid way to govern large uh, number of people was no longer valid I, i would call it sort of like the death nail or like the last nail obviously it was something that was developing already right but yeah that was like the formal recognition mm-hmm. right which like let's let's loop back to this but just just keep in mind that when i said that the un has three functions mm. increasingly there's a fourth okay which is as a legitimate right right and like we can get into this in more detail but that's what happened with the 1960 declaration the the veneer of legitimacy that those claims had or that empires had right was removed so so now that was removed and now the way for a state to become legitimate is for the un to recognize it right so, or for it to join become a member i mean that would be the ultimate uh, recognition right so in international law today there is not really such a thing as a non sovereign state okay because members of the un are states and all members of the un are sovereign equals this is right at the top of the un charter right so what this has done is it sort of conflated the concepts of sovereignty statehood and un membership okay and just rolled them all into one right so if you're a state it's pretty much impossible for you to not be a member of the un okay the sort of like the the like outlier examples i think myanmar refused to take a seat for the longest time okay north korea was not a state well i mean was not a member of the un for a period of time but other than those 
if you're not a member of the United Nations as such, you're not recognized as a state. Okay. Again, if you are a member of the United Nations, you are recognized as a state and you are deemed to be sovereign. Okay. So it's hard to tease these things out, right? Right. No, I mean, like, for example, when the Taliban took over control of Kabul and much of Afghanistan uh, in the 90s, they were not considered a legitimate uh, state or a sovereign state by most countries in the world or they didn't have a full membership in the UN, right? I mean, it was, I think, Pakistan and a couple of countries. No, no, they had a membership. They chose to boycott. Okay. Um, There is no mechanism by which a state that is a member of the UN can cease to be one. Okay. It's a one-way oh, so, direction. So, so, so there was a seat already for Afghanistan and Taliban chose not to sit in it. That the Taliban chose not to sit in it. Okay. Had the Taliban chosen to sit in it, I mean, other countries could have protested. The mm. classic way to protest in the UN, by the way, is to walk out when the, right. the ambassador of that country is speaking. So they could have been like, we don't recognize you, we're leaving. Mm. But under the charter, there would be nothing that could be done to deny that Afghanistan was a country and that the Taliban as the current government of that country could exercise the seat. I mean, could could like occupy and speak in the seat of that country. But that's because a seat was already existing, right? Like if Correct. you and I tomorrow form the Republic of Lemuria or something, uh, we can't just automatically get and even if we own an island somewhere. So that's what I meant, right? There's There's no such thing as a non-UN member state that is a sovereign state sure right we would just be the the like wannabe state of whatever hmm. right but should a large enough number of un member states decide to grant us recognition and like the general assembly and the security council pass resolutions that accepted our membership of the un done okay. irreversibly done okay right That's the last country to cease to be a member of the un as I recall, was Yugoslavia. Okay. And that's because Yugoslavia ceased to be. Right. It's not that they lost their membership. It's that they split. Mm. Right? And they became five, six, seven other countries. Right. Each of which are UN member states. Mm. Kosovo is the controversial one. Right. So it's sort of halfway there. But a number of states recognize it and like are willing to vote in favor of its membership. It participates in and sits in a number of UN bodies. Right. There is also objection. So it's not all the way there yet. Hmm. And probably what, South Sudan might be the youngest member? South Sudan is the newest member state. It was uh, East Timor before that. Right. Um, The interesting sort of uh, exception to what I said about like, there's no such thing as a non-UN member state is Taiwan. Okay. Right. Because uh, that seat that is recognized as China is held by Mainland China, communist China. And it was held by Taiwan uh, Taiwan for a significant length of time, right? Early on in the... It was held by Taiwan for 26 years. Right. Well, after China was significantly powerful and independent. Oh, in in 1949, the the Kuomintang lose, right? Chiang Kai-shek loses, sets up a government in Taiwan. Hmm. So, within the first five years... Right. Right. And like this is also playing out in the backdrop of like the Korean War. Right. The first Korean War. Right. Um, and so, of course, the U.S. refuses to recognize the communist government of China. Right. And this continues. Through the 1960s. Uh, what happens in the early 1970s? India connection. So this is 
Kissinger and uh, Nixon reaching out to China. Right. So this is Kissinger famously getting quote unquote deli belly. <laughs> right. Where he like claimed that he had an upset stomach when in fact he had secretly flown to Beijing. Right. Uh, to meet with who's then Zhou Enlai, right? I think. Premier at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then Nixon and Zhou having their rapprochement. Uh, only then does the US recognize communist China as the the uh, rightful government that sits in that seat of So again, of the China. seat was there, but somebody else was sitting. Yeah, then. Taiwan was sitting in it for 26 years, right? Um, in point of fact, a number of even European countries had already recognized communist China as like the, the rightful representative of the people of China or the government of right. China, etc. Even before 1971. But the tipping point was Nixon, Zhou. Okay. Thanks, Amaya. Let's take a short break and come back. And after the break, I want to talk to you a little more about um, uh, international law in the UN, about the UN Security Council, and also India's relationship with the UN. Sure. Are you constantly seeking happiness? Wondering how to make the most of every day? How not to let your inhibitions stop you from achieving your goals? It's now time to get your A-game on. It's time to unlock your true potential. Tune in to the empowering series with me, Zarina Poonawala, to feel empowered in all genres of life. From behavioral skills to management skills, from health to relationships, from mental well-being to emotional well-being, and of course, your finances. I've got you covered with these tips and tricks from me, Zarina, and true life stories from my amazing guests. You're bound to bring your purest to the table. Tune in to the Empowering Series with Zarina Punawala every Thursday on the IVM Podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Pavan Srinath and welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. I'm here with Amaya Naik and we are talking about the United Nations. Amaya, so we, I mean, you talked about how instrumental the UN was in sort of completing decolonization in right. pretty much everywhere in the world. And uh, what other such sort of landmark things did um, the UN accomplish over the last 30, 40 years? Um, so the other big one is sort of the evolution of uh, possibly the only truly global piece of international law, uh, which is the Convention on the Law of the Sea. Okay. Right, which is the the literally the rules of the road when it comes to anything in the seas or the maritime domain. Right. This is about ownership, territorial um, um, integrity, and so on, and also access, movement, everything. Right. Fully. So it it's what determines essentially three zones. Right. So it's what determines what is your territorial waters. It's what determines what is your exclusive economic zone through which you can't restrict passage but you can restrict uh, economic activities and primarily right. fishing and like mining prospecting etc right. and then the rest which is the high seas where there is freedom of navigation freedom of passage uh, it also classifies land features in the sea based on what they are you know like island is sort of the highest but there's a bunch of things right. smaller and uh, possibly more ephemeral than islands Right. And what can or can't be done with those who can assert a claim, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fiendishly complicated area of international law in itself, right? The guy who chaired the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea 
Singaporean diplomat named Tommy Koh. Okay. Who's still alive is sort of like the grand statesman of Singapore at this point. Is legendary in the in the negotiation and diplomacy world for like pulling off this incredibly complicated multilateral diplomacy feat, uh, where he essentially like managed the interests of many different blocks and countries and like sent people out into committees again and again till they could come up with permutations and combinations that worked. Uh, unclass the the convention in the sense of. When I say convention now, I mean the meeting of the group of people who wrote it right. uh, is also notable because it was one of the first times that the UN started really having uh, outside technical and scientific experts coming in and briefing people, Okay, which now is the norm. Right. Uh, but then it was sort of like, no, it's the state's prerogative to choose. Uh, one of the things that Ambassador Ko did was to say, yeah, but none of you guys know what like a seafloor subsidence zone is. So can we please just have a geologist explain it to us? Right. And then we'll decide what we want to do about it. Um, Convention on the Law of the Sea is as close to universal law as we have, right? A handful of holdouts, but even most of the holdouts largely act in compliance with, even if they haven't signed. Right. Or like the US have signed but not ratified. So even with, say, what's happening with the South China Sea and the territorial claims... China and the famous nine dash line. Uh, so you're saying you, because there's unclos now, they are trying to fight it out under the unclos rules of the games in a sense. Uh, South China Sea and especially China sort of building up of islands in that region and converting them into either military or maritime bases uh, is a point blank violation of unclos. There's, okay. no, there's no justifying it in that sense, right? Hmm. China sort of is one of the prominent holdouts on UNCLOS and like has its own interpretations. Hmm. But the fact that UNCLOS exists is the reason why the US, France, Australia, possibly also India, multiple countries uh, actually send ships through some of those regions that China says are its territorial waters, but that under UNCLOS could not possibly be that. Right. That is called phone-ups, freedom of navigation operations. Okay. And it's a, it's a, it's a constant thing. It, it, it's right. done... So it's like a flag march in the middle of the sea. Deliberately, right? right? right. Yeah, it's an Ashwamedh Yagnya of our, like... But the reason it's done that way is because, uh, technically speaking, one of the two components of international law is state practice. Okay. And so freedom of navigation operations is state practice demonstrating that you do not accept the Chinese claim or interpretation. Right? So at no point of time in the future can the Chinese turn around and say... Yeah, but nobody objected. So, like, they tacitly accepted what we wanted to do. Right. No, we object. And to show we object, we're going to send, like, military hardware. But it's not just military hardware, right? A military ship is a floating sovereign territory of the country. Right. So, I'm going to send, like, my sovereign asset through what I consider the high seas or, like, area that is free to navigate. So, yeah, law of the sea is one. But the other big thing, of course, that, like, the UN does, and this might be what more listeners have heard about, is peacekeeping. Right. Right. Which also, circa 1950s again, right? So, Suez crisis. Okay. Right after World War Two, is when the first UN peacekeeping force was deployed. It's called the UN Emergency Force. UNF-1, later there was a UNF-2. Okay. And there weren't that many such missions in the first 20, 30 years of the UN. Basically because... What a peacekeeping force did in that time was 
they physically interposed themselves between two armies while a negotiation was going on okay so they were just providing an assurance to the two armies that listen neither of you is going to attack the other and the states worked out whatever deal they did and they came back and then they like disbanded their armies right and the peacekeeping force went away this is probably how historical peacekeeping forces worked right you have a third country which wants to intervene to stop a war they might have done something of the sort yeah logically but there is absolutely nothing in the un charter no wording whatsoever okay that like construes the power to do something like this okay right and so between them lester pearson who was the first president of the general assembly um the canadian diplomat in fact he was canadian secretary of state at the time i think when he took over the presidency um and uh, secretary general at the time basically came up with this idea of saying we're going to send unarmed observers okay, so they're stand. unarmed yeah yeah they are they are unarmed or maybe they're like lightly armed in the sense of they carry like their personal pistol or like sidearm right but that's just like that's part of their uniform it's not a right. weapon that can you're standing between two lines of like people with machine guns and tanks right right uh but we're going to send essentially unarmed observers to like stand on this line mm. and ensure that during the peace process there is no escalation between the parties right there is a trust deficit we're going to solve it by interposing these people okay. and that's going to create the space for the peace process to play out right um once you get to the cold war era which is what we get post the decolonization era we spoke about right. right and so you have a number of states becoming client states of either the us or the soviets you start seeing an increase in okay uh, the use of peacekeeping missions they're still not very ambitious okay but they are sent to places where there are sort of like frozen conflicts okay and this is because the existence of the cold war tends to lead to more both more conflicts breaking out and more conflicts freezing right but but tell me something I, i'm trying to figure this out man my history on this is very weak so say you have the vietnam war happening right would the un pkf have been there anywhere in uh, vietnam around then or it would just be south vietnam the american troops the nato troops and um, north vietnam so i like are you asking was there a peacekeeping force deployed to vietnam yeah no. like uh, so in active conflict that we see or in afghanistan you've had the but it's called the isaf right international yeah, security yeah international security which is not a un peacekeeping mission right uh, it's uh, a nato mission but ha yeah. and they do more than what most peacekeeping missions Correct. do they, right they I do mean, far more combat than, uh, exactly yeah. so so in afghanistan is there a pkf as well how uh, in many of the active conflicts that we see do we see the pkf are they called in only at specific points so you're you're like asking about something that is uh, like the subject of many phd theses and like a subject of like significant internal debate within the un itself right okay uh, but there's something called classical principles of peacekeeping and in terms of the classical principles it's non use of force okay neutrality impartiality so like you you literally are the unarmed guy standing on the line just saying there's nothing i can do to y'all militarily but the fact that i'm here signifies that the attention of the world is on this spot right and if you do something to me you're escalating the and game and so you whoever it is that does that first thing you know you might not actually attack me by the way 
right you may choose to just ignore me i don't have the means to stop you mm. like if i try to physically stand in your way you can just drive around me right right but by crossing the line that i am monitoring you are taking an escalatory action right at that point of time the world is going to turn around and say you did the wrong thing first right the entire subsequent process of negotiation right where people's sympathies lie who is seen as because there is such a thing in international law as countermeasures right right a wrongful act does invite countermeasures there is such a thing in international law as a rightful use of force again if you are attacked unprovoked then you are allowed to use force to defend yourself the presence of the peace operation sort of uh, makes that line between makes what is considered an aggressive or unlawful act really clear right uh, so but but in the recent past so starting from i'm going to say uh the early 2000s in fact in yugoslavia and then increasingly in africa and haiti we have seen peacekeeping missions grow increasingly heavily armed so the principle has gone from non use of force to non use of force except in defense of one's own troops and mission so you, that's generally interpreted as you can't shoot first but you can shoot back right uh to non use of force except to protect the mission or civilians in areas where the mission is operating so if somebody is attacking civilians in the area where you're present you don't have to say but nobody shot at me right you can take action to protect those people from that attack to non use of force except in defense of one's own forces civilians or the mandate and now once you get to or the mandate of the mission that's really not non use of force anymore that that is war right i mean that is so use of violence so for a political still, end the thing that distinguishes it from war notionally is that in theory the peacekeeping force is still not on the side of one or the other of the combatants sure they'll do this whatever this use of force is mm. they'll do this against anybody who uses force against them or against civilians or against the mandate right it's not played out like that on the ground in point of fact you need to sign a contract with the country to be able to deploy forces there in the first place right there's a status of forces agreement that has to be in place before you can even send your troops in right whether or not the un mission has this every individual troop contributing country because by the way peacekeepers are not uh, an international army right? right they are volunteered by countries including india we send a lot of peacekeepers right we are the largest or amongst the top 3 Right. contributors depending on what year you look at um we're not going to send our soldiers to operate in country x unless we have an agreement with the government of country x if the government of country x is fighting some other internal battle into which the peacekeeping force is supposed to be interposed right so unlike in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s this is now peacekeeping in the middle of an ongoing conflict right it's not peacekeeping after there has been a ceasefire and you're just there to keep sides apart right if you have to sign an agreement with one of the parties to the conflict to deploy to the conflict area yeah of course there are going to be terms in there that advantage the right and so the instances of un peacekeepers using force against the armed forces of the government 
of the country to which they are deployed vanishingly rare right right that's where you're more likely to to see reporting of the fact that such force has been used by the armed forces of the country but the un peacekeepers did not actually do something to stop it there are there are sort of very honorable exceptions to this okay but for the most part right and we've actually gone a step further because the un mission in congo for a while had something called a force intervention brigade okay which really was war fighting it really was so it was a specific group of soldiers who were authorized to go out and attack a particular set of actors in that country okay so we've come a very very long way from sort of there is no language in the charter that even envisages anything to do with peacekeeping to now there are not only are there like 20 something odd peacekeeping missions active i'm using the term loosely peace operations which includes peacekeeping special political missions right. observers there are maybe 14 active peacekeeping missions um but we've even actually gone to the point where the un has at some point of time mandated a war fighting force okay right only the one instance but it's happened right and the story in international law is once the precedent is there you expect it to happen again and and this is evolved purely as practice rather than you know something like the unclosed process or something uh where someone is laid down very very clearly on how the un should act yeah 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 absolutely this is a gray area in the right. uh, so peacekeeping is uh, jokingly called chapter 6.5 because chapter 6 in the un charter is uh, peaceful measures to resolve conflict okay and chapter 7 is use of force <laughs> right so there's 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 chapter 6.5 and then somebody is like come back and described what a particular mission has done as chapter 6.75 right uh and then there's like people who disliked the way that chinese deployments to peacekeeping missions were uh were sort of blending coercion and and non-coercive means sort of said there's a chinese chapter 6 and within the scholarly community that works on the un this is the subject of a great deal of debate okay a great deal of theorizing around sort of what is the legal basis Uh, and a great deal of controversy right but correct me if i'm wrong all these peacekeeping missions need to be approved by the un security council right correct. before they get deployed so tell us about this security council i mean the general assembly seems to be the place where everybody has membership and, uh, and has equal votes and have equal votes but it's the unsc that has that's actually a part of the executive right and have has more powers so tell us right. about this this grouping and how it evolved and is it now sort of the linchpin of um uh, un as a whole it was always the linchpin of the un as a whole so again the philosophy behind the un is we need to create an international body that will act as on the one hand a check upon the warlike tendencies of states right fine but on the other hand it is an agent and an instrument of state power that is governed collectively by this group of states right so of course there had to be principles right if the un is the agent and states are the principles and there has to be a body of those principles that actually decide what the agent should do that body is the security council because what the un charter did 
was it basically said the Security Council has a unique legal power that no other body in the world has or can exercise. Okay. This unique legal power is that they have the power to declare the use of force against a state legal. Right? There are only two circumstances under which it is legal to use force under international law today. Okay. One is you are attacked and you are responding. Right? Giant can of worms. Mm. Lots of lots to explore in there. Sure. But still, you were attacked and you are responding. And the other is the Security Council permitted you to. Okay. Any other use is illegal. Okay. Right? So that was the the fundamental sort of uh, preeminence that was awarded to the Security Council as a body. Okay. Right? So, and then within so the Security Council, of course, they said the five most powerful states, which will also act as like regional guarantors of peace and security. Right will actually get a veto because if they don't want to say that a particular use of force is lawful, then we're setting ourselves up for a conflict because what if they think it's an unlawful use of force and what if they chip in on the side of the party that that force is being used against, right? And what is our primary purpose? To keep states from going to war. Right. So, so in that sense, it's there has to be a consensus of the five for anything to be sanctioned. Correct. Uh, for anything to be approved. Sanctioned has a, <laughs> yeah, sorry. a meaning in the charter, right? Sure. So uh, so something like, say, the uh, Second Iraq War or the US-led uh, sort of, you can call it an invasion of Afghanistan or whatever, toppling of the Taliban regime, they were both sort of approved by the UN Security Council? Uh, no. So those are different. The US invasion of Afghanistan falls under the the broad category of we were attacked and we are responding. Okay. Right? So it didn't need to go through the security. So if you as a country um, claim that you've been attacked and therefore you uh, attack another country, uh, can the UNSC come in and say, hey, you weren't really attacked, you're the first aggressor over here and it's illegal? Uh, Yes-ish in that there's not really a mechanism in place for the Security Council or anybody else to adjudicate your claim that you were attacked. Right. Right? Uh, note that the US tried very hard to demonstrate that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and like could attack at any moment, etc., etc., etc. Right. So they were certainly trying to to have the Security Council uh, adjudicate that in their in their favor, but there's not actually a mechanism for that. Okay. But what the Security Council could do is it could very well pass a resolution saying, because we don't believe your claim that you were attacked first, your use of force in this case is a threat to international peace and security. It is unlawful. It is you know please desist. Okay. Or and, else. And then there can be increasing escalation. Chapter of, six, failing uh, which chapter seven. Okay. And by the way, like the pinnacle of chapter 7 uh, is not peacekeeping. The pinnacle of chapter 7 is the Security Council authorizes you to go to war. Right. Like I said, they're the only body that can legally allow the use of force. And this happened only with Congo. No, 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 no. The Force Intervention Brigade is just like a, a like a weird subject of its own. Sure, sure. 
In fact, the Security Council, I think, did pass a resolution approving uh, the U.S. use of force in Afghanistan. Okay. But that was like, I mean, it was it was sort of abundant caution or something, right? Because in any case, they had the claim under, like, responding to an enemy attack. The invasion of Iraq was unlawful. Under the terms of the UN Charter, mm. the invasion of Iraq was unlawful. There, there's nothing right. that, that, like, there's no body of law or no, like, resolution that says they could have done this. The US will say that, like, there are resolutions that had an implicit authority to act. Uh, the claim is contentious and not widely believed. So, so that brings me square to this idea of international law where, so what happens now when a country does something that illegal, right? I mean, you have an international court, but, but how does that really work and how far does the writ of international law go? Um, went again, right? Anarchy is what states make of it. Okay. Right. We have a, an elaborate bureaucratic and legal system. Hasn't stopped being anarchic. Right. Right. So what are the consequences when a state violates international law? Depends very much on sort of who is the state and who is affected and like who cares enough about this to do something about it. Right. right. You could, of course, go to the International Court of Justice. If you are an affected party, if you're mm. an affected state, you could, of course, take that first state to the right. International Court of Justice. Many states have, but they've often taken them over things that are not exactly violations of like, so we've been saying international law in this conversation for like really big things, right? Like mm. the law of the sea and the UN charter, right? Right. International law can also be any number of smaller treaties, including like commercial agreements and things and whatever. Uh, it can include things like water use and water sharing rights and treaties. Bunch of cases in the International Court of Justice do have to do with things like riparian rights or like whether pollution in one country is damaging another country uh, or whether like a ship that was going from one country illegally intruded into completely non-violent things in that sense, right? So it's sort of like the lower courts that work all over the country. They don't just handle matters of crime and sort of horrible things, but also uh, yeah, it's a, property disputes and everything else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's litigating sort of, as it were, commercial disputes in this case, right? And and here sort of states go to the international court because they think it's a good place for arbitration to happen or is it because they can't settle it bilaterally? How, how does that play out? Uh, so, again, just be careful with the wording because there is a permanent court of arbitration. Okay. Which is not the International Court of okay. Justice. <laughs> so, if states think they want to go for arbitration, then they go to the PCA. All uh, right. If they think they want to go for adjudication, they go to the International Court of Justice. Right. Yeah, obviously, if it's gotten to the stage where they've done that, they weren't able to resolve it bilaterally. But say they don't like what the court decides. What happens then? Too bad. Okay. I mean, again, the, the the ICJ, as with domestic courts, doesn't have enforcement authority. Hmm. Right? So... I mean, domestic courts do, right? In a sense. No, the, the state does. The court does not. Right. And right? so the court can enable the state to take action. The court passes a judgment. Hmm. But then it's some other branch of the state that actually enacts it, right? Right. If they say seize property or like place a lien on property... Somebody in 
property and revenue does that right. if they say arrest somebody in home affairs and police does that right right so the icj doesn't have an enforcement mechanism per se mm. right presumably if there's an icj verdict and then it's like disregarded you could go back and bring a case for damages okay and it would be sort of an open and shut case but there would still not necessarily be a way to so all of this sort of falls under what i was describing as the so there is something called the articles on responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts okay this is the body of law in which the notion of countermeasures sits and so basically what this would do if you refuse to comply with an icj verdict is it would be one of the channels through which the other state could then say in that case i am going to take countermeasures okay and these countermeasures will be lawful because you were the one who were in breach of the international law first right i mean not abiding by an icj verdict is about as straightforward a breach of international law right vis-a-vis two states as you can imagine and then the state that was affected could do things like place sanctions or place other kinds of tariffs or even seize certain assets right which had they done otherwise in the absence of that would be point blank unlawful uh so the exception as it were to the things we've been talking about right uh and this links back to what you were saying earlier about like who adjudicates my claim that i've been attacked there is something called the international criminal court it's a relatively recent invention it only came to be in i think 2001 okay it's under something called the rome statute of the international criminal court the rome statute establishes four categories of crimes that the international criminal court can adjudicate and uh, because it's a criminal court sentence and punish for mm. right uh genocide right without getting into the technical definition you're trying to wipe out an entire group of people right uh war crimes which is there is a body of law embodied in the geneva conventions that talks about what is lawful to do in war right so the un charter establishes when it is lawful to use force the geneva conventions establish what uses of force are lawful or how you can use force that is lawful right uh, so if you breach that in the middle of a war war crimes okay crimes against humanity which is essentially a shadow category of war crimes mm. except we can't quite establish that there's a war going on okay so that sort of threshold requirement of there is a war between two states or whatever has not been met Mm. maybe it's an internal conflict maybe something else doesn't mean that you can use force in ways that are prohibited by the geneva conventions crimes against humanity the fourth category crimes of aggression okay this is notionally where it would be determined who attacked first okay. right because the one that attacked first would be committing the crime of aggression the one that responded would be engaging in lawful self defense mm. but whereas genocide war crimes and crimes against humanity have been defined there is something called the elements of crimes which is an accompanying document to the uh, rome statute that actually says the following acts in the following circumstances in the following combination or individually but to this degree of intensity blah 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 right. constitute the crime of so and so which is criminalized right article 6 one of the rome statute and so on and so forth right uh 
uh, crime of aggression has not been defined. So it exists on the books as like a crime that the ICC could look into. But until the elements of crime mm. have been defined in that way, it's not actually possible for the ICC to look into it. Um, and of course, the reason it hasn't been defined is because it's a deeply politically contentious issue in right. a way that like, especially post-World War II and the Holocaust, genocide was not. Right. So from this, I want to go in a different direction and actually ask you about, uh, you know, how uh, the UN works and, you know, all the cogs and wheels that make up the UN. Right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, we've been talking about law and all these higher sort of policy idea discussions, but who actually runs the UN? Who are the people who are uh, working there? Uh, I mean, they're just... Um, hazy stories of how if you thought your government's bureaucracy was bad, the UN bureaucracy is so much more laborious to mm-hmm. navigate. You actually probably have to navigate sort of multiple countries worth of bureaucracy. So tell me a little bit about that, about people yeah. who work in the UN. Yeah. So remember we said the sort of the, the, the legislature equivalent here is the General Assembly and the right. ECOSOC, hmm. Right. So if you were actually in New York or Geneva, there would be assemblies of states right. with diplomats. Hmm. right? So that's one group of people who work at the UN. The diplomats sent there by their countries. Right. So they work for their countries. They're based at... Yeah, the permanent representative of India sure. to the UN and who, you know, so on and so forth. Hmm. The second is the members of the secretariat, funds and agencies. Okay. Right. The third is the judges and the staff of the ICJ. Okay, sure. so it's a small group. We're not going to talk about them much. Right? Mm-hmm. They sit in The Hague. Obviously, they're lawyers and judges and they hear cases and they right. deliver judgments. But you have a secretary general, under secretaries and right. a whole apparatus. Right. So the secretariat has, obviously, it's headed by the secretary general, under whom there are a number of under secretary generals. There's sort of a, there's a deputy secretary general post that's like not exactly officially defined. Okay. It like, it sometimes is defined on paper, sometimes it's just unofficially sort of accepted, it normally is... Sort of like what a deputy prime minister would be, right? Yeah, so you don't really have a... So the, the secretary general's post is, of course, intensely political. Okay. Right? Everything from, like, the vetting and shortlisting of candidates through, like, the election process, etc., etc., etc. Extremely political. It's a complicated <laughs> formula of sort of, like, general assembly plus security council plus number of countries have to, etc. Uh... Only when the last secretary general is elected, which is Antonio Guterres' secretary general right now, only during that election were a number of states as well as non-state bodies that were pressing for this able to get the UN to even adopt a certain code of conduct for that. Okay. Saying that candidates have to be publicly declared by such and such week. They cannot be replaced thereafter. Uh, They have to have public consultations with not just the Security Council, but with the General Assembly in open session televised. Okay. Uh, they have to have public consultations with uh, representatives of civil society outside. Some are voluntary, some are actually mandated. This whole thing was actually like, there was an effort to make the process more participatory and more transparent recently. Okay. Right? Um, there was also an effort to get the UN to commit uh, to nominating uh, 50% of its candidates for the secretary general post had to be women. Okay, And it's a very strong movement towards having a female secretary general of the UN. It's 75 plus years. Hasn't haven't had happened. one yet. Hmm. Anyway, that's the secretary general. 
under the secretary general the deputy secretary general person i said is normally like a very eminent statesman or diplomat okay maybe a maybe a career un staffer maybe like a career diplomat but is generally someone who's like widely respected in the un space okay uh and is sort of expected to be the the uh internal envoy of the secretary general either to countries or to staff mm. so it's sort of like a, a position of eminence okay but not of any real legal okay power or consequence uh under secretary general <coughs> are the people who head the various departments under the secretariat so there's a department of uh uh so it used to be that there was a department of peacekeeper department of field support and department of political affairs guterres has actually reformed this so now there is a department of peace operations that takes care of sort of like the field and administrative elements of peacekeeping and there's a department of peace and political affairs okay which looks after either peacekeeping or special political missions which are sort of like negotiation and mediation envoys to places that were in conflict there's a department of safety and security that looks after like literally physical security they hire the guards they set in place the security procedures uh, there's a department of communications there's a department of general assembly and conference management so on and so forth so this is the the true administrative and bureaucratic side of the un many of these are paralleled in the funds and agencies okay the biggest of which is the un development program undp which basically funds directs monitors various forms of development aid and projects in in countries around the right. world uh the office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs which looks at humanitarian issues uh the high commissioner for refugees UN Women which is the UN body for gender equality that runs a number of measures basically looking at uh bringing gender equality at all levels of government and profession uh so how would this bureaucracy be worse than many national bureaucracies i mean what makes it more challenging is it the hiring process the vetting process do a lot of positions need to have sort of confirmation hearings of sorts no so it's not that way uh Yes it is all of the stuff to do with like not just hiring but the entire range of hr mm-hmm. right hiring promotions contracts benefits blah 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 right uh, so there are two things happening one there's just the surely mechanical this is a 70 year old bureaucracy designed by bureaucrats of multiple countries so there's just like a lot of internal interoperability issues right right what is considered the norm in one country or culture may not be in another mm. etc this is just sort of like the organic growth of complexity over there right the other is that remember i said that one of the ways in which major countries have retained power is by having a very clear unofficial but very clear split about who gets the senior position so the under secretary general of which department is going to be of which nationality right and this is not always just under secretary generals it can sometimes go sort of one step down as well okay so the un the un permanent staff hierarchy in ascending order is p1 p2 p3 p4 p5 d1 d2 usg secretary general okay. so even d1 posts which is like director below under secretary general can also be very closely monitored by the different countries right a function of military power a function of how much they are financing a function of sort of 
traditional association with interest in that area. Peacekeeping has traditionally been a French Undersecretary General. Okay. You know, similarly, Interpol, I think, recently sort of became a Chinese thing. Okay. Uh, the US has UNDP or something else or like, or like, if the if the head of the World Bank is French, then so-and-so in the UN cannot also be French. So this is this entire sort of high-level politics going on. But right. even going down to lower levels, the UN insists on maintaining geographic representation. Okay. For the same reason that if the majority of your staff, your permanent staff who can be sent anywhere in the world and who are deciding the policies and their implementation are overwhelmingly of one or the other nationality, then you're de facto handing over control and political power right. to that country's political apparatus. Right? Indians, Pakistanis, French, Americans, Japanese, all overrepresented in the UN hierarchy. Are overrepresented? Overrepresented. We have too many people there. Okay. Relative to what our geographic representation as share of population or whatever should be. Right. Geographic representation is also an insanely complicated formula in itself, right? Right. But if you ever see a UN job posting, you will see a paragraph in there that says uh, nationals of or citizens of underrepresented countries are encouraged to apply. Okay. This applies in particular to country to citizens of and then like an alphabetical list of countries. Okay. Right? Uh Sort of like a quasi-reservation of... Yes. Not even reservation. Yes. So, preference. Uh, so there is not a rule that says this can only be given to a person right. of this nationality. Right? But it's like, you can think of it as a point system. Mm. Right? If you happen to belong to one of those nationalities that's underrepresented, you just got a plus 20. Right. Right? On some arbitrary scale, you're starting higher than the other people are. So would that mean that if... Someone new from India wanted to join the UN, it would be a little harder because uh, other candidates would be preferred. As opposed to, say, if you were Lithuanian? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, again, this is not, this is sort of more true of the secretariat than it is of funds and agencies. And okay. now there's sort of a third category of sort of like partnership bodies that are not even like fully UN right. bodies. They're like, they're sort of like autonomous entities. And so they might be more, not lax, more what is the word I'm looking for, uh, less restrictive on national origin uh, in their hiring. Okay. But for the core secretariat, absolutely. You will have trouble if you are often overrepresented nationality and apply. You will have to make a better case for yourself than somebody who had the identical qualifications. Right. But happened to be a citizen of Malta. Malta, I think, is the most underrepresented country. Okay. And it's also tiny. Yeah. And um, so tell me more about India and the UN then. I mean, clearly, a lot of Indians work in the UN. Mm -hmm. um, Shashi Tharoor was uh, climbed sort of highest, became the undersecretary general while he was there. And was a candidate for secretary general. Right. And then for lost. The only Indian candidate, perhaps. Yes. So far. Um so, what's India's equation been, apart from sending a lot of stuff? We were not quite a founding member. No, no, we were. We were. We were a founding member. Oh, as a colony of the uh, yes. British yeah, yeah. Kingdom. Yes, yeah. Non-independent India was still a founding member of the UN. 
we were one of the 26 countries that signed the 1942 declaration of the UN. Okay. As a colony of the British. Right. We were one of the 51 countries that signed the San Francisco Charter of the United Nations. I haven't quite figured out why this is, but I think the man who signed on India's behalf on the charter uh, is somebody named Ramaswamy Mudaliar. Okay. He's also a member of the Constituent Assembly. It's just like not somebody who's prominent as a diplomat. So it's one of those little mysteries for me of like, how did it end up being this person who was deputed to the conference to sign? But we were, I mean, independent India's government under Nehru was a, a deep believer in and a champion of the United Nations. Vijay Lakshmi Pandit led India's delegation to the UN for about 12 years. She was the first woman president of the General Assembly from 1953 to 58. I Don't quote me on the years. Okay. But she was the second president of the General Assembly and the first woman. Lester Pearson, whom I mentioned earlier, was involved with creating peacekeeping, was the first president of the General Assembly. So she took over from somebody of no small eminence in that sense. We were a prominent voice, obviously, for the decolonization resolution. Right. And then over the years, of course, during the Cold War years, because India was sort of associated with, or was leading the non-aligned movement, we were sort of the among the more prominent of like this third block of countries right. in the UN, whose existence is associated with a lot of like, you can't call them like, again, capital I, capital L, international law. Mm. Right. But there are a lot of like policies and structural decisions within the UN. Say, for instance, the fact that regional commissions were established, mm. that regional offices were established, the idea of the UN trying to decentralize even somewhat and push power out. Right. Has a lot to do with the fact that there was a pretty vocal block of countries in the UN saying, listen, you can't make all of these decisions about like, what kind of assistance you're going to provide by way of, I'm making this up, right? But like crop and irrigation insurance in Egypt. Not a decision that you can make from New York or Geneva. Right. Right? As I said, there are, there are of course, a number of Indian staff members at the UN. India is one of the largest contributors of peacekeeping troops. So I think senior most man at the UN was Under Secretary General for Field Operations. Okay. Right? This is before the... Antonio Guterres restructuring. Mm. So the Department of Field Support, which sort of sat across the Department of Peace and the Department of Political Affairs because it did all the logistics and enabling for them. Right. Oh, I'm blanking on the man's name right now and I've met him. Anyway, there was an, there was an Indian IS officer okay. who held that post and was after Tharoor, the next Indian to be an undersecretary general. Okay. Right. Um, and our, our sort of greatest engagement with the UN today in terms of like commitment of resources and money and all of that is that we are a major provider of peacekeeping forces and equipment. Has India had any notable stints in the UN Security Council? Uh, I remember, uh, I think the last stint, I think this is when the Syrian conflict had, was on, was mostly abstentions and... Yeah, so it's it's like, there may have been notable states, but they were not notable because of anything we did. Right. right? No, India's position on the Security Council is pretty middle of the road. Right. I mean, it's not exactly NAM. We, we like obviously have a US favoring stance. But so look, there's 
like there's a tendency within India to sort of hype up anything we do in the Security Council or every time we're like nominated to take a seat at the Security Council or things like that, right? For that matter, people hyped up Tharoor's candidacy for the Secretary General as well. Outside of our contribution of peacekeeping forces, we're like a middling influence at best, right? We're not a large contributor on the budget side, which by the way is by design. Like countries could contribute either money or in kind or in personnel, etc., right? We were until not that long ago still a net recipient of aid. Mm. I mean, this has changed in your and my life lifetimes, right? Right. Now India even gives out bilateral aid. But like early 1990s, we were still a net recipient of like substantial amounts. Right. And it was, I mean, most of that is in the form of loans rather than grants. Because we're not such a poor country that we qualify for like the kind of like no strings tied grants that get given. Mm-hmm. But then those were highly subsidized loans and they were like serviced on very soft terms. You really can't have the best of both worlds, right? right? You can't get that status with like that kind of assistance, that kind of money being sent to you, that kind of money being spent here. And also, I mean, especially with the UN Security Council, the way India engages with various parts of the world is so different that they're better off perhaps abstaining on votes rather than picking a choice on certain things, right? Like, for example, uh, in the Middle East, India, by and large, enjoys good relations with pretty Parties much... Parties that may not enjoy good relations with each other. With, yes. Hate each other, are at war with each other, but they're quite chilled out about yeah. uh, engaging yeah, with yeah. India. I mean, we were and, recently invited to the Organization of the Islamic Conference again, right? Right. And and you don't want to go to the UN Security Council and have to vote against Israel or Palestine or on something else, so, which which sort of is not something that India... India tries to engage all parties in various ways uh, bilaterally, right? So, I mean, I'm, I I hear what you're saying. I just don't want to encourage the notion that like voting in the Security Council is some kind of spontaneous and dramatic act, mm. right? Believe me, by the time a resolution is called for vote, People already the votes know. are known, right? right? The entire thing has been negotiated. Mm. Normally speaking, the country that's introducing a draft is known as the pen holder. Okay. Normally speaking, the pen holder country will be one of the P5. Normally speaking, that pen holder country will not advance a resolution for vote without it being clear that there are enough votes in its favor. Okay. Right? This can go wrong. Countries can occasionally choose to abstain sort of at the last minute. But relatively minor edits in the resolution will come back and it will... Mm. Right? So... Yes, we, we do abstain reasonably often. But I don't think like India's abstention record is sort of out of the norm okay. for the Security Council. Uh, and there's not even like some sort of very deep pattern on like, these are the issues on which we abstain versus vote yes versus vote no. How you're voting in the Security Council is just one aspect of your overall diplomatic engagement, right? Right. So you can even vote yes on something that an ally will dislike as long as you've you know, you've made an arrangement with them otherwise. Right. Right. You're like, hey, I need to I need to be seen as taking a position on this. Don't worry. It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna lead to anything in this way. Or like we're not actually going to cut off something because this so it's theater but it's not dramatic, right? Right. Uh and and I mean it also ties into what you uh, our discussion when we were talking about the Iran nuclear deal. 
know, one of the questions I remember asking you was, you know, could India have played that sort of a mediation role and so on? And I mean, that wasn't, I mean, you spoke about how it wasn't likely. And it's sort of, that gets mirrored in India's UNSC stints, right? I mean, we've yeah. not done anything explosive or dramatic. Yeah, so and, India's India's pet topic at the UN is basically having a global definition of terrorism adopted. Hmm. You can see why this is a topic of great interest to us. Right. Right, because we then want to use it as a cudgel right. to beat our neighbors with. Right? And the... Uh, Hasn't gone all that far, right? Yeah. You you have followed the recent entire uh, uh, episode over getting Masood Azhar declared right. a, a globally recognized terrorist, right? Like, okay, now he's been declared that. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> like, okay, there are sanctions. There is, like, additional lookout notices, whatever. Many of the countries that have, like, already placed those kinds of restrictions in place, right? So the the incremental gain is not that much. It's a PR victory, right? Right. It's it's something that we can turn around and say, look, here's visible the, success that's out there. No, no, not just that. It's it's that we can turn around and say the the uh, rightness of our cause has been endorsed by the highest body that can do this, right? So I said earlier, the UN increasingly has this role, right? It's it's not just forum instrument actor increasingly it's legitimate right right because so many areas of law have developed from within the un and because this practice has developed of taking these disputes to various parts of the un the uh, halo of association with the un actually has become something sought after mm. right so one of the reasons that a peacekeeping mission is being mandated and the host country, the country where it's going to be based, is creating real difficulties is because they know that being formally recognized as a party to watch by the peacekeeping mission and a party that like negotiators from the UN or like whatever group of mediators has been called will go and engage with is in the first instance conferring legitimacy onto that group. Right. That the the government of the country may not want to do. By the way, what do governments call them because they don't want them to be legitimate? Non-state actors. Terrorists. Okay. Right? It's just one reason why many countries in the world are not particularly interested in having a clear definition of terrorists. But it's a minor quibble. I'm sure that if there was a definition, they would find a way to say that the groups that they don't like Hmm. fit into that definition as well. Right? Lawyers can be infinitely creative that way. Uh, So, a lot of what India and other middle and small countries derive from the UN, and actually what even all the way up to the P5 derive from the UN, is this stamp of legitimacy on their actions. Right? So, there's, can I do it? Do I have the ability? Do I have the power? Do I have the... the, uh, gumption to like deal with the consequences and do it anyway right right and then there's can i claim that it was the correct and right and lawful and legitimate and approved thing to do and that latter can only come from two sources it can come from an established body of international law right so again convention on the law of the sea your ship came into what is recognized as my territorial waters. Mm. 
I have every legal basis to say, yes, I impounded them, etc. But this was the appropriate, legitimate, correct thing to do. On anything that is not that clear cut, Mm. somewhere you need the UN or one of the big multilateral organizations to be involved. And then you can turn around and say, so ranging from everything from like, we got a resolution in the Security Council, all the way down to, I am a local partner in this project of this thing that is funded by UNDP, right? It adds this halo of legitimacy to you. And in some ways, that's more interesting than the the high table drama that's happening in the GAO, the Security Council. Right. Is the ways that like local political actors are increasingly sort of tapping into and leveraging association with the UN. Well, that corresponds to all the WhatsApp forwards we've all seen about uh, how UNICEF has made awards on <laughs> who the best prime minister is or right. something else. Right. So from all the way from WhatsApp all the way to the UNSC, um, the UN seems to be providing this legitimator role. Uh, Ameya, thank you so much for coming back on the Pragati podcast. It was an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks, Vern. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It'll mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. Hey, this is Shiladitya. And I'm Amit Doshi. And we host Shunya One. It's a really fun podcast where we talk to some of the best entrepreneurs in the country. Yes, talking about everything from their startup challenges to what they're building and all the future of technology right here. So catch us on the IBM Podcast website, app, or wherever you listen to your podcast from. Do you wish you were smarter? Well, so do we. But the next best thing? We could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified. A podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday. On the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya!